Well, welcome to episode 82 of Kyperian Commentary. It's a real joy to be back for this episode. My guest with me, as you can see, is uh, Dr. Alistair Roberts, uh, someone I've known, Alistair, I think I've known of you since the early 2000s, and I remember reading your blog, and I believe it was called 40 Bicycles, is that right? That's correct. 40 it's a I long time right. ago. It was a very long, very long time ago. <laughs> and I remember even in those days, uh, Alistair, just being really amazed by your insights and uh, your in various theological topics. And since then, since those early days when I was in my, my 20s, your uh, emphasis and your work just really hasn't stopped since then. I know you received a PhD from, from Durham, and you've been writing a lot of uh, really great pieces for Theopolis, Mere Orthodox, and a host of other uh, places, uh, including uh, the work you published with uh, Andrew Wilson in 18, The Echoes of Exodus, which I found uh, very, very helpful. So, Alistair, welcome to Kyperion, brother. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, delight to talk to you. It is uh, 8 o'clock here in uh, Pensacola and uh, 2 o'clock there where you are. Where are you at this point? Where are you at this point? Stoke-on-Trent. So it's about halfway between Birmingham, not Birmingham, and yeah. Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, great. Well, mighty cheers to have you and cheers for all your uh, Liverpool fans there celebrating this, uh, <laughs> this title. Uh, there are a lot of things I want to talk about with you, and we have a, a limited time here. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. We saw each other last at the uh, Theopolis graduation uh, many, many moons ago, it appears now. Uh, but before we get to sort of the current discussion on your Bible readings and reflections, tell me a little bit about your background. And in particular, I want to ask you, um, where did you, do you recall a time when you began to show just this uh, intense interest in, in theological studies? It probably would have been in my later teens, my late teens. Um, it was a period of time when I was, I'd backslid for a while from my Christian faith. And at that time, I was struggling with ill health, other things like that. And it was looking through um, my dad's library and getting to know certain people in my church who were about my age, who were thinking about theological issues. And that pushed me to reflect about theological questions in a new way. Um, I was involved with my dad's work at that time. So he, until recently, has been working in a self-run um, publishing house, Tentmaker Publications. Mm -hmm. And so I used to work with him in preparing his books and reading some of those texts, which were largely historical texts, early Methodist, Reformed, Puritan, other things like that, um, texts those really challenged me in my Christian faith. And so it was that initial challenge followed by spending time in my dad's library, which is just an immense, <laughs> an immense library. It's not as big as it used to be, but it used to have over 8,000 volumes. Wow. Um, so I discovered in his library at one point, this weird little book called Through New Eyes. Uh -huh. And that book was like a depth charge in my theology. And yeah. the effects are still playing themselves out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've heard that story um, numerous times from you in particular. I'm always uh, encouraged and renewed when I, when I hear it again. There's also a good case in the words you've mentioned there, a good case for uh, fatherly libraries. Yep. You just never know the kinds of gems that your child will pick up and say, this is the stimuli that I'll need to engage a life of, of reading and intellectual life for the rest of my life. That's, that's a great, um, I love hearing that story from you. 
I am a real admirer of uh, productive thinkers, productive theologians. I read books on, on productivity, and I have the, the tremendous luxury of being around uh, very productive thinkers, people that I know very well. Some of them are uh, mutual friends of ours. And I, I put you, Alistair, in some of my, my list of role models. You certainly make the top five. And what I love about your work is I think you're a, a plotter, P-L-O-D-D-E-R. You just continually provide work a little here and a little there. But the secret is that you're steady. You have been steady, I think, ever since the, the days of 40 Bicycles when you would uh, write about the Eucharist and Calvin, some of the things that I really learned to appreciate in, in those early days. A more practical question for you. How, how do you develop these habits of, of, of plotting, of, of being productive in, a, in an age when uh, distraction is sort of our, our slogan? What's the, the impetus here? Is it just the sheer love for the process? Do you have any sort of strategies for a creative and fruitful theological endeavor? For me, it, it is a lot of it is about developing a love for the process. Um, if you love the pro process, you won't find it difficult. Um, so I've always found theology to be something that engages me in many different levels. It's something that I clearly feel very deeply about on a, um, a personal level. It's something that is important to my faith. But it's also something that has been a source of community for me, a context mm. where I've sharpened my thinking and engaged with the world in different ways. And that's been very rewarding too. So having those sorts of ways in which you can draw upon um, the practice and find fulfillment in it, it does make it easier to do it. Breaking down a marathon into specific stages also helps. If you're trying to do everything at once, it just won't happen. So as you say, the, plod the plodding method works a lot better than when you're trying to do this, keep up a sprint, it's a lot harder that way. And so for me, things like a blog, where you're doing small and um, relatively short posts, is not writing a book, um, but you're writing intermittent pieces that you have to keep writing something once a week or so. And that gives you a pace to keep. And I found that is easier than doing a big project. In yeah. the same way, something like my daily biblical reflections, just have to do something every single day. I know how much I have to do. It's a lot, but it's not undoable. I can, I can manage it. Yeah. And I think that helps. I think also having a community around you really makes a difference. If you have a healthy community that stimulates you, that challenges you to produce things that are worthwhile and will push back against you, that will um, test you and um, cross-examine your viewpoints, that is really helpful. And so being a part of various online communities and offline communities, that's been a source of um, energy and fuel for my, for my projects. I'll add just uh, one sort of personal note here. Last night we had a, a men's get together for our church and a few other friends from outside. And we had just a, a wonderful time that we spent. Uh, there, there's this conversation online between, um, uh, I think it's Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin about the loss of long form conversation. The sense in which we, we are at this point, we are in a, uh, in a post persuasion age where we're only prone to accepting little, you know, memes and short, short dialogues. Everything has to fit into a seven minute time frame for a TV episode or whatever. There, there's been a loss of this long form conversation, this, this dialogue. I was so energized by 
our conversation last night, which ranged from uh, biblical typology to history to current political issues addressing uh, the American scenario here. What, what do you, are these online communities, for example, and the other communities, Ecclesiastes, whatever it may be, are these the kinds of things that continually stimulate you? Would you feel, uh, a, a, in a sense, sort of betraying your community if you hit the pause button on your writing and in your uh, pondering of these intellectual issues? In in some way, I mean, I'd be feeling I'd be betraying myself because these are things that I'm really passionate about. And these are things that I'm personally deeply invested in. It's not just for my community, but for the community as well, there is a sense of common investment. We're all invested in each other, We're encouraging each other in our work and our various activities. and knowing that for instance one of the things that's been a great blessing in my um reflections has been knowing that there is a community behind me that's supporting me and encouraging pray, praying for me knowing that it's not just me doing this project by myself but there's i'm constantly receiving input from other people of various kinds what i'm producing i would not be able to produce that were it not for so many people who have taught me how to read certain texts just the skills of reading more generally so that makes a difference. I think also you mentioned the type of conversation. There's something about the conversation that particularly I think occurred in blogs and online for a, um, a decade or so ago that was very conducive for sharpening conversation. So you had long form aerated discourse. So there'd be people talking in very different contexts and they'll take time over it. It wasn't the sort of hasty reactive discourse that you get on Facebook or Twitter or other forms of social media. It was a very careful, deliberate conversation and people knew each other. So there wasn't this sense of talking into a void where you don't know what context people are reading you in. That makes a difference. And so knowing the people that you're talking to and working with a smaller, um, more engaged audience is so much easier, I find, than the vast audiences that often you find in social media. and that sort of conversation I found has enabled me to explore ideas in a different way than I would do if I were in this constant hurly-burly of the conversation of social media. Because what it challenges you to do, for instance, if I'm doing a biblical reflection, I have to step back from everything. I have to spend some time thinking about a text and just in conversation with the text itself. And also, I'm talking with the text. I'm not dealing with topical issues, the live issue of the day. I'm dealing with something that is a perennial um, conversation partner, something that challenges me to get my priorities straight. That It's not always about what's on the um, agenda of the culture war at the moment. It's about what God has said to us uh, in the past and continues to say to us now in his word. And that, I think, helps when you're going into these conversations that are so preoccupied with what's happening at this moment in time to get some degree of perspective. And that is something that is easier to find in certain sorts of conversations than in others. I think ideally what you need are contexts where you can bound your context of discourse from the wider world and all its um, energies and dynamics and issues and preoccupations and just focus upon things that truly matter for their own sake. And I think scripture has to be paramount among those things. 
That's wonderful. That's, that's great. And one of the things I, the analogy that comes to mind to me, I think we are so often prone to assuming that only, you know, leaving the Shire is the ideal, that only pursuing theological pugilistic discourse, that's the ideal. We have to destroy this ring. We have to do our duty, but we forget the fact that there's so much joy in the Shire to stay at home, to consider the foundation of our worldview, to consider the foundation of our narrative, the scriptures. And that's, that's interesting because I, I, back in January, when he talked about this uh, project, which are uh, these daily reflections upon the scripture lessons of the day, I, 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 was, I was really intrigued by that. And I, I found it fascinating to hear because it is not the kind of endeavor that will, will likely get you, you know, 5,000 likes on Facebook. It is a, a contemplative sort of endeavor. You're meditating on the text. And I, one of the reasons I wanted to have you over is I, I want you to just walk me through that process of what it is. I, and I listened to a few of them this morning. What it is to read through Genesis 1 and then make those meditations, which, by the way, have a, a very... Uh, a, a devotional dimension to them. And we, I think, forget that the biblical impetus has a, 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 a real desire to change the piety of the Christians. So talk about that process um, of this, uh, these biblical reflections that you do every day, with the exception of Saturday and Sunday. Is that right? No, every day. Every day, literally every day. Well, yep. And then extra on certain days. So I've done extra ones for um, Easter and Pentecost and things like that. Wonderful. Wonderful. So walk through that process, if you will. Yeah, um, you mentioned Genesis 1. And the thing is, the process has changed quite a bit since um, the very beginning of it. At, this, at the outset, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be a challenging project. And I'm going to invest a lot of time in it. But I just did not realize how much time it would take. And I started off in a slightly less ambitious way with shorter reflections. And now it's grown considerably larger. So at this point, I spend um, several hours each day just in commentaries, reading through the text several times. That's always been one of the things I found very helpful, just attending to the text. Think about what about this text stands out? What's unusual here? What details are mentioned that you wouldn't expect to be mentioned? Um, how about things that, what have I heard before? Um, where have I heard it before? Um, what patterns am I noticing here? What issues, what aspects of the story is the um, author drawing your attention to? What particular features? And those sorts of questions become a bit more tuned. The more that you spend time reading a text again and again and again and seeing what comes out of it. And it's a practice in attention. So that's at the very, that's at the very heart of what I'm doing. But then alongside that, I'm spending a lot of time in commentaries. Mm -hmm. And the commentaries are there as sort of interlocutors, other people who have been paying attention to this text from a variety of different vantage points. Um, some conservatives, some liberals, some of different denominations. And reading this same text and seeing what they see, seeing what they see and learning and disagreeing and learning why I believe what I believe about the text. And that process takes quite some time, but it's been incredibly rewarding. One of the things I've been trying to do through this project is to build up an extensive collection of biblical commentaries. And through that, to have a resource to use for the future, 
but also to have a sense of the different voices that are brought to these different texts. And I've found that incredibly rewarding. But that process is a lengthy one. So I'll jot down some notes um, as I'm doing that. And then at the end of the day, I'll record um, something. But it varies in how long it takes, depending on how long I have on a given day. But it takes a lot longer than it did when I first started. Oh, I can imagine. These are just not the spontaneous uh, reflections. These are things that are very well, um, there's a lot of time putting to it. I don't know specifically what the, um, what the dimension of biblical literacy is in England. Um, I know here in the U.S. and the Barna, Barna's always producing these stats, and obviously it's very, very low. The, the things that we cherish the most in America, for example, like the Ten Commandments, you know, only very few evangelicals can name them what they are. Um, is this project, I mean, this project of yours would appear to be a, a kind of an attempt to biblically bring about the literacy dimension of those who are listening to your work, right? Yes, and I would say that biblical literacy in the UK is far worse than it is in the US. One of the things that people have in the US often is they have adult Sunday, Sunday school, which gives you a chance to get into more depth in the biblical text. Whereas in the UK, that's not something we have. And so people are dependent upon maybe 20 minutes, if they're lucky, on a um, Sunday morning, if that gets into the text. And then there just isn't that much emphasis, I think, in many contexts upon personal scriptural reading. So one of the things I'm trying to achieve with this is addressing what I think is the greatest lack in the church, which is just familiarity with the biblical text and what God says within it. And developing a familiarity with the text, but also a confidence and uh, a sense of excitement about the text, mm -hmm. because the text is once you've started to get over the initial hurdles mm -hmm. it is a delight to get into it's so encouraging it's challenging it's something that unsettles at many points mm -hmm. but it is a living and active word and that's one of the things that i found going through this project just how much tarrying with a particular text and reading it every single day sequentially and studying each text in detail you go through the entire text and you've studied it and then you read it again at the end. And it's, it, it's a very different text than when you first started. Because when you started the, the beginning of the day, you had some idea of where it was going and what it was yeah. saying. But at the end, after having looked through everything, it crackles and it has um, a, a sort of liveliness and energy to it that you maybe did not notice at the beginning. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to convey with the project, that this is a text that is our text. It belongs to the whole church, not just to theologians. It is something that you should be able to feel at ease in, um, something that should become familiar. You should know your landmarks of the biblical text. And beyond that, you should be deeply acquainted with the terrain and find yourself at home within the world of the Bible, as James Jordan and others have talked about. You use the word... Um unsettled. and I like the use of that language there because I think there are a lot of evangelical Christians who are perfectly happy being unsettled when it comes to biblical literacy. And uh, you and I have done a lot of work for, uh, I don't know if people can see here, the Theopolis Institute. Um, cheers for um, Brian and, and Peter and our friends in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, in your estimation, Alistair, and you've been doing theology for a couple of decades, 
Are you encouraged by what you've seen the last two decades, or are you at a point where the mechanical dimension has just taken over and you're just producing for the sake of producing? Are, are you incur- I mean, is your production the basis of you've seen tremendous fruit from your labors and interactions? Have you been encouraging seeing that dimension of literacy taking place in the UK and the US? My general posture has been to focus upon what I'm doing and to not get too preoccupied with results and other things like that. Um, Because I think often what we'll be called to do is we might be involved in the process of sowing. We're not going to be reaping much, but we need to sow the seed well. And so being disciplined about what we're doing, not getting too drawn into um, the politics of the situations around us, not getting too drawn into um, all these other things that might distract us from our particular labors. So I've not been focusing so much upon encouragements or discouragements in my work. I've just been trying to do my work well. Um, But I do think that there are a mixture. Um, In the UK, I've just not, there's not many people who engage with my work in the UK. In the UK, there are some encouraging developments. And for the most part, I think levels of biblical literacy are very low. Um, there are good things happening, though. I've seen a number of people who are young clergy within the Church of England, for instance, who are deeply concerned about biblical literacy and wanting to move things in that direction. And so there are little pockets of in- encouraging um, situations. And one of the blessings that I have working with Theopolis has been visiting lots of different places and seeing firsthand up close many of these different encouraging developments and so maybe it's hard to get a clear sense of things more generally when you're seeing a lot of encouraging small ventures in local situations and there are many discouragements around but I take heart from those things and I find I'm only addressing a fairly small audience at the moment but that audience is very engaged and it's really encouraging to see what difference things are making on that scale and that's what I've largely been concerned about. I think so often we're concerned with trying to change the world that we don't really focus upon, okay, what's within the reach of our own hands and what can we change at that level? And what encouragement can we draw draw from what God is doing within our own reach? And there I think I've found considerable encouragement, but it's something that is maybe the seed of something to come. Maybe it isn't, but I'm hoping that what we're seeing are, some developments that will yield greater fruit in the longer term future. Because that's one of the, the things that can be um, a reality in our situations, that there can be really discouraging general trends, but some remarkable things that are happening when you look close in specific contexts. And I think that is what we're seeing. Working with some a group like Theopolis, you're seeing, and I think, you can um, vouch for this as well. Some developments in biblical study and in communities of study that are remarkably encouraging. Mm -hmm. And there's signs of growth in places where there may not have been growth before. And you can see the difference that this makes. Now, that's not generally spread out yet, but there's no reason why it can't be. And so I'm someone who believes that Christ is going to reign until all his enemies are under his feet. And so when you see something encouraging happening on the small scale, 
there's no reason to believe that that can't be spread and transplanted and scaled up in different ways. So that's what I'm focusing upon. That's great. That's uh, that's very well. That's encouraging. Let me be one who encourages your labors because I think you're doing a, a great work and hopefully a, a, a kind of work that will last and will have a generational impact. <clears throat> I've been reading a lot of uh, Calvin's labors in Geneva, and there were obviously some high caliber theologians like Beza, for example, in Geneva. But then there are a host of Genevan pastors during the Calvin's tenure in Geneva who were completely unrecognized, unknown, but just faithfully labored in their local parish, died, never to be written of again. And I, I think of this in terms of just this public world in which we, we live in here. And so just as a, as a closing thought and question for you, Alistair, we are on social media. I think there are a million benefits social media. It's a matter of uh, stewardship, I think. But as an observer and a participant in this strange sphere called uh, Twitter or whatever it may be, I want to ask you just a couple of questions regarding the theological discourse and this sort of um, limited uh, word count age as we have. First of all, what have you, what have you, what do you believe to have been an accomplishment in the engagement that we both have, or you have specifically? On Twitter, what have you gained from that accomplishment? Has 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 the gain been very minimal, and the deficiencies and the loss has been so great that you find this a, a worthless effort, with the exception of a little bit of a publicity? And, and also, a second question here is: Should theologians, uh, those of us who have been trained theologically, should we sort of possess these self-imposed rituals about our our Twitter use, uh, for example? Yes, yeah, good question. Um, I think Twitter can be many things to many people. And one of the first things that we might find we need to do is to disaggregate the different ways in which Twitter can be used. So it's a great way to get communicate links, for instance. It's a great way to um, have good articles and conversations brought to your awareness. There are some long form Twitterers who are doing superb work. I mean, I think of James Bajon's threads on biblical theology and peter williams as well people like that the work that they're doing you should be on twitter just to follow what they're (laughs) doing um but there's also the danger of just getting caught up and preoccupied with the latest fight um and getting really antagonized and um preoccupied with the ways that whatever the current issues are, the way that they're playing out within your environment. And so I found stepping back from that and caring just a lot less about whatever the latest issue is, that helps me in my work. And my work more generally involves stepping back from that because it's not what I'm writing or thinking about in the context of my reflections. And that has been such a relief. So I'd encourage people, if they're on Twitter and finding their time being drawn up in these fights, get off. That's not going to do you much good. Spend time in something that is going to ground you in something um, deeper, give you a sense of what um, Edwin Friedman has called self-differentiation. And that's found in having something that you're um, focused upon and that you care about, that you love, that is not just about reacting to something or someone, but is about something that you are, you need to be about this thing. You need to love it. You need to care about it and be committed to it. 
And I've found scripture is the place that as Christians, we need to find that primarily. We need to be devoted to that. And then to our local communities, to our families, to our churches. And once that is in place, it's a lot easier to participate in social media in a more limited and healthy manner. Um, but get those foundations correct first, and then you won't find it quite such a struggle. The other thing I've found is work with maybe a smaller audience is better. And I've found I've spoken to the very large audiences on my blog before. I've had some posts that have over 100,000 hits. And now I'm every day I'm speaking to a group of about 1,000. And that is far more rewarding. Um, because they are an engaged group of people. They're committed, listening day after day. And the sort of conversation that I'm able to have in that context is one that's deeply contextualized compared to the more general conversation that would have taken place previously on Twitter and um, my blog as a sort of personal platform. And so I'd encourage people to focus not upon the size of the audience but the quality of the audience and what you can achieve with them because often with the larger audience you'll find you're antagonizing people and they're antagonizing you and you're not actually making a deep change it felt very much on blogging towards the end um i'm still blogging but it's very occasional now it felt like speaking into a microphone and twitter and facebook holding the volume controls mm -hmm. and if i ever said anything controversial it would be just turned up to the max because that's what people want to talk about because people are preoccupied with the controversies but the controversies are not going to help us grow mm -hmm. and in part it's this desire to grow through and um, consuming lots and lots of medicine whereas what we need is solid food and so spending time ingesting that solid food and being committed to context Another thing here is solitude, mm -hmm. um, turning off social media, spending time in solitude, reading scripture, reading good books, reading books that aren't just relevant books or recent books that people are all talking about, but reading the classics, things like that. That will give you a grounding that will enable you to engage in the current debates in a far more intelligent and measured and self-controlled manner. Um, so I'd encourage people, if you're going to use social media, get the foundations in place first. Get context where you have solitude, where you are not engaged in social media. So bound your practice and then make sure that that practice is not obstructing your commitment to your primary communities and contexts. Mm. Alistair Roberts, it's been a long time, but it sure has been uh, worthwhile, my dear brother. Listen, thank you for your labors and we'll make sure we make these links available to our listeners on our Kyperion.com website. Alistair, uh, the Lord be with you. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. God bless.